Very good morning, my dear friends. Uh, we praise God for this wonderful season of Advent as we anticipate the coming of Christ with hope and joy that only God can give. Let's commit this time to the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and gracious Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. When Barack Obama was campaigning for the 2008 presidential elections, he made a speech where he spoke about the story of one of his campaign workers, Ashley Beer. At that time, Ashley was a 23-year-old who helped the Obama campaign in Florence, South Carolina. When she was just nine years old, her mother got cancer, and soon because uh, Ashley's mom was tired through treatments and all of that, she had to take more and more time off from work, and eventually she was let go from the job, and uh, she lost her healthcare coverage, so that the family had to file for bankruptcy, and Ashley, at that tender age, realized that she had to help take care of her mom. And with wisdom beyond her years, Ashley quickly understood that food was one of their most expensive costs for the household, and so she convinced her mother that the one thing that the mom really liked and wanted to eat after, above all was mustard and relish sandwich. That was the cheapest way to eat, so she convinced her mom to go for that, and she did this for a year, nursed her mother back to health, and then Ashley, during the campaign sharing, shared that uh, she joined the campaign, the Obama campaign, because she wanted to help millions of other children in the country who wanted and needed to help their parents too. Ashley wanted to disrupt the status quo of helplessness and despair faced by families without health care and children without resources, but who, like her, have a determination to make a difference. We also recently witnessed the passing of George H.W. Bush, age 94, the 41st President of the United States. Bush, the scene, Bush Sr. was regarded as part of the greatest generation in the U.S. Uh, this is the generation that grew up during the depressions in the 20s, a lot of hardship, sacrificed themselves in World War II and helped rebuild a nation after that. This was a generation who knew about self-sacrifice and service to their nation. And for the late president, leaders from across the political spectrum came to honour a man they recognise as someone who embodies the honour and sacrifice for what they believed in. Many of you here in Penang would also similarly recognise the outpouring of gifts, grief and accolades over the passing of the late Kapal Singh, who was admired even by his political opponents. They were somehow made of sterner stuff. They were disruptors in overcoming the status quo. When others shrunk back from service, they seemed to fill the void with their leadership and character. But whether we are talking about nine-year-old girls forced to grow up and take care of their sick mothers, or 94-year-old veteran soldiers and statesmen who spend their lives working for what they believed in, the powers that be and complacency are often disrupted by those who believe enough to act, even from a position of hopelessness and weakness. The people of Isaiah's day also faced hopelessness and weakness. Theirs was supposed to be the favoured nation of God. Theirs was supposed to be blessing and prosperity under God's good grace. 
Theirs was supposed to be a vocation of priesthood and a house of prayer for all nations. But it had all gone terribly wrong. They allowed themselves to be influenced by neighboring tribes and their practices. They relied on political and military alliances instead of trusting in God. They incorporated idol worship that promised more security instead of being solely secured by their worship of the one true God. And so they lost it all. God gave his people over to their sins. Eventually, the land was overrun, the people went into exile, and the temple was destroyed. It was as if God removed his hand of protection and the forces of darkness and death rushed in to grip the land and his people. The situation became extremely grim and hopeless indeed. This is the kind of bondage and hopelessness that social activism and political statesmen alone cannot even begin to solve. But in the midst of such horror, where there was a pronouncement of judgment and destruction, God was stirring again to overturn the curse of sin, to dispel the darkness. We read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the start of the bulletin as well, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a land of deep darkness, in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Even as the people of God suffered God's judgment under the law, God was not content to allow the forces of darkness hold sway over the fate of his people. In Isaiah chapter 61, God's intention was to raise up a messianic deliverer, someone anointed by the spirit of the sovereign Lord, who would disrupt and reverse the tide of darkness and the effects of sin. And we read, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, that is the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Darkness is about to be disrupted. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 18 and following, Jesus of Nazareth, at the beginning stages of his ministry, took up the scroll of Isaiah and read the passage we just read. He also added Isaiah chapter 35, recovery of sight for the blind, or reading from the Greek version of the Old Testament, and Isaiah chapter 58, setting the oppressed free. And he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All the hopes and visions of deliverance that Isaiah and the prophets pointed to and longed for has now come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the anointed one, the one on whom rests the spirit of the sovereign Lord. Notice as well in the Isaiah chapter 61 passage, as, as well as the one in Luke chapter 4, the proclamation of the good news, the gospel, is accompanied by deeds that bring release, 
healing and deliverance. And this is exactly what Jesus did in his earthly ministry as recorded for us in all four Gospels. This hope of God's redemptive activity started to be realized amongst the first band of the disciples of Jesus, but then grew out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, up to the ends of the earth. Isaiah always envisioned the Lord coming back to his people, Israel, but at the same time of the Lord's return, all the nations will come in and be counted as part of God's people. And so we here also fall heir to that promise of the gathering in of the nations to the Lord. We are numbered among God's people who are saved, renewed, and redeemed by the Messianic Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. And as His people, being disrupted by the gospel and being disruptive in the power of the same gospel is to be our calling and mission this Christmas and beyond. We're going to look at three application points today on the disruptive nature of Christmas. First, the disruptive coming of Christ. Second, the disruptive calling of Christ for disciples. And third, the disruptive commission of Christ for the church. First, the disruptive nature of Christ's coming. Now, if you're in touch with the business world, and many of you here are, you will quickly realize that huge swaths of industries are being disrupted and upended by changing competitive landscapes, fast-paced startups, and the adoption of new technologies. Think of how Grab has changed the way we book taxis or a car ride. Think of how AirAsia and other budget carriers have completely come out of nowhere and dominate the way we fly. Think of how Airbnb completely upstaged hotels and the travel industry. In all of these cases and more, the old or pre-existing order was upended and disrupted beyond recognition. Rules of the old order and power structures that kept the previous dominant companies in place rapidly fell apart in the face of new disruptive innovation. Who would have thought that premium airlines like British Airways, Singapore Airlines, Cathay Pacific would continuously bleed to this day market share to the upstaging uh, budget startups, budget carrier startups, to a certain extent that they themselves had to launch their own version of the budget carriers? Who would have thought that Airbnb has more rooms under its booking management system compared to international leading hotel chains? In an infinitely greater way, the coming of Christ is the most disruptive power for good since the creation of the heavens and earth. The fall of humanity into sin and the eventual corruption of God's people, Israel, meant that God's good creation is ruled by dark powers of sin and death. These dark powers manifest themselves in a rule of tyrants, in social injustice, in, in murders, in sexual immorality, in the idolatry and the sinful, rebellious pride of humanity. Against such darkness, moral philosophy, good government, 
and organized religions have no power against. They have no power even to disturb the darkness, much less save us from it. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son. And when God sent His Son, the dominating powers of darkness were put on notice that their time is up. The time of their unchecked abuse and corruption has come to an end. Their infection into every fabric of human existence is about to be severely disrupted. When the powers of the old order, mindsets and attitudes are being disrupted, they often react against the source of disruption. We see this in the action of King Herod sending out orders to kill boys two years and below at the start of Jesus' early life in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas because King Herod feared a rival king. We see this in the opposition of religious leaders against Jesus during his time of his earthly ministry because they feared a rival authority to God's truth. We see this in the conspiracy of the Jerusalem priesthood and religious council to coerce the Roman authorities to put Jesus to death on the cross because they feared the end of their world if Jesus became king. We even see this in the people of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus first spoke about his mission in the light of Isaiah chapter 61. They started out with amazement at his words. They ended up trying to kill him because Jesus offended their sense of exclusive privilege in God's eyes. These were the signs that the existing power structures were reacting against the disruption that the Son of God was bringing into their world. But to all who responded to Jesus and came to him in faith, Jesus healed and delivered them from the powers that held them in bondage and kept them from the fullness of life with God. This is how Apostle, the Apostle Peter uh, summarized the, the ministry of Jesus in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Reading, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and see the language of anointing here, with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Even when the demonic powers and principalities or authorities thought they had won by putting Jesus to the death on the cross, God turned that around and worked it to his own purposes to bring about redemption and the forgiveness of sins through the victory of the cross. This is from Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The struggle continues. The demonic powers and authorities may have been mortally disrupted and defeated, but they are still waging furiously a struggle against God's good purposes in the time they have left. As Paul puts it in Galatians, the flesh, the sinful nature, wars against the spirit. It is in constant conflict against the spirit of God. 
whether we realize it or not, we are part of this cosmic struggle between good and evil. If the power of the gospel is not fully at work in us, then something else is. There is no neutral ground as such. The power of the gospel needs to disrupt the sinful patterns of our lives. The gospel needs to overcome that which holds us and binds us in bondage and in a grip of sin. And we need to be confronted with the question to what extent the gospel of Christ has disrupted my life for good. Or are the old powers of sin, unforgiveness and pride still in control over my life? The powers of fear, guilt and anxieties need to be disrupted. Paralyzing fears and shame that cause us to jump at our own shadows and immobilize us from serving God and others. The bondage that holds us to sinful and destructive habits needs to be disrupted. Bondage that causes us to destroy the good God desires for us and for others. The attitudes and mindsets that keep us in the prison of selfishness, in the captivity of bitter offense against others, in the dungeon of the uncrucified ego, all of these need to be disrupted. I'd like to invite us this day to Jesus. The, he is the anointed one. He is the one who will free us from the prison of our sins, to release us from the captivity of our fears, our guilt and shame, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour that marks the end of our exile from God and the beginning of our life as part of God's new creation. Second, the disruptive nature of our calling as disciples of Christ. Pat Guardiola is a hugely successful football manager currently at the helm of Manchester City Football Club. Beat Everton 3-1 yesterday top of the league. Bad news for Liverpool, but that's life. That's life. Um, he started his debut as the first team manager for Barcelona in 2008. When he first took over, Pat made it very clear, and he said this publicly, that a radical change of attitudes will be required on the part of the players. In fact, he underscored that change by publicly stating that the celebrity superstars of the team at that time Ronaldinho, Deco, and Samuel Eto were not part of his plans moving forward. Very soon, all of them and a few others were offloaded the team, within, some within even a few weeks, others within the year. And Pep sent a clear message on the kind of player he wanted and the qualities of a player he needed to be on his team. At that early press conference, Pep said this, I want talented, inspired players to understand that individually they are worth much less than when they invoke team values. That is to say, he, he was saying basically, check your egos at the door and work hard for the team. In the 2009-10 season, Barcelona brought in Zlatan Ibrahimovic, the talented but 
highly talented but highly temperamental Swedish striker in one of the rare occasions where Pep made a character misjudgment about the player he took in. When Zelatan first started training, Pep told him a few ground rules. He said, here at Barcelona, we keep our feet on the ground. And he told Zelatan, who loved fast cars, he said, we don't turn up for training in Ferraris and Porsches because we come here to work. But for Zlatan, these values or rules proved too disruptive to his personality and style. He wanted to play for Barcelona, but only on his own terms. He was apparently not so interested in what the team needed or what the team manager required. And so things finally came to a head when he refused to work in a system where one player, Lionel Messi, had a more prominent role. And so Zelatan was uh, offloaded after one unhappy season. It's often the case that as Christians, we sometimes treat the call of discipleship something along similar lines. We actually may like to be called disciples, and we like to sign up for discipleship learning tracks, that's all great. But we back off. The instant discipleship becomes too disruptive to our lifestyle, our attitudes and preferences, or even worse, when it requires us to work with people we don't like or don't prefer to associate with. Now, Jesus encountered a variety of responses from uh, people to God's gracious invitation to be part of his kingdom. He told a parable of a master who had gave a great banquet, invited many guests, but one by one, they gave various excuses not to come. I just bought a field, I need to go see it. I bought oxen, I need to attend to them. Oh, I just got married, so it's not a convenient time for me. With the result that the initial invited guests all missed out on the banquet, whereas those marginalized and who never expected to be invited all got in instead. Similarly, when Jesus calls for disciples to follow him, some would say, please wait while I attend to family family burials or, or obligations, or I'll follow you when it's convenient. But Jesus sets a very high bar. Some would even say unreasonable demands by the social cultural norms of his day and hours. But such demands are only unreasonable after all if it comes from a human leader or religious teacher who makes them. But what if the King of glory and the Lord of life makes these demands of us? What if the one who demands absolute obedience is the one on whom the spirit of the sovereign Lord rests? The extent of our response to Jesus is indicative of the extent we understand the nature of his lordship over us. In other words, when Jesus calls us to pick up the cross and follow him, is he offering a useful suggestion or is he giving a royal command? In the so-called secular world, there are some who seem to have no problems giving unqualified, unquestioned sacrifice to gain promotion, to achieve ambitions or to obtain peer applause. Kim Keller a pastor in New York City famously said that child sacrifice still happens today in modern-day New York. And I think was referring to the Wall Street banks and firms, and he says that these firms demand that you sacrifice time with your children and family, 
for the sake of the job, and many people do so. The key problem with our reluctance to completely follow Jesus is I think we have too much at stake. We have too many vested interests in the status quo or in the comfort zones of our choosing to want any of them to be disrupted. We sometimes want to manage our life of faith where we can maintain control or discretion on how much to follow the law. I follow some principles, I give some money, I don't disturb others as long as they don't disturb me. I give my weekly quota of religious devotion. That's it. The rest of my time and my life is mine. It's a nice theory, unfortunately, it's not to be found in Scripture. I think we have to learn to trust the goodness of God rather than let our imaginations run wild of how God will make us totally miserable if we surrender everything to Him. Now, make no mistake, there are huge costs that come with discipleship, and we should not try to minimize that or sidestep the issue. Responding to Christ's call for discipleship does entail absolute surrender of all things to His Lordship. There are some things that will, be taken away, that will be taken away from us that we are better off without or that we need to give up in order to serve Him faithfully. There are other things that the Lord allows to be taken away which we will not understand in this life but only to trust in His sovereignty. But in the Lord's abundant goodness, for a lot of the things we surrender to Him, the Lord graciously gives back to us. He restores them back to our lives, but He does so in a way that the things that are restored to us no longer have an unhealthy hold on us. They no longer take precedence over the Lord in our lives. Rather, they find their proper and ordained place in our lives. And I'm talking about families, relationships, jobs, whatever good things that the Lord gives to us, but they find their goodness only in their subordination to the Lord. Also, we remember that we are serving a, a generous and gracious God. As Paul reminds us in Romans 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? As it would often said, we cannot outgive God. We cannot fully grasp the super abounding riches of his grace towards us. Isn't such a God worth living for? Isn't such a God worth dying for? The abounding life that God gives us in Christ is beyond the reach of physical suffering and death. That's why Paul continues in Romans 8, For your sake we face death all the day long, but yet we are more than conquerors, that nothing, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power can separate us from the love of God in Christ. 
we need to have a bigger view of what God can do. We need to have stronger faith in what God is able to accomplish. We need a much deeper sense of the worth, the worthiness of the God we worship so that we can give Him all, every last full measure of our devotion and service. Being disrupted by the call of discipleship is then very much part of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah King. Third, we need to know and experience the disruptive nature of our commission as the church. It should come as no surprise that when the church truly serves according to the disruptive power of the gospel, that the whole, whole communities and societies start to be transformed. As the opponents of Paul's ministry in this place called Thessalonica, who rioted against his work and complained to the authorities uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, said, these men who have caused trouble, referring to Paul and his companions, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Or in an older translation, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. One Anglican bishop, or I think it's an archbishop, reportedly said something along these lines. Why is it that wherever I go, they politely serve tea and coffee? But wherever the Apostle Paul went, there were riots and demonstrations. There's something about the earth-shattering truth of the gospel and the world turning upside down, disruptive nature of the gospel that the church must not lose. The church is not supposed to operate at the same level of an NGO, social activist, or political action group. Important as these may be, we honour the work and dedication of those involved in these fields. We, we support and pray for the work of men and women of good conscience and goodwill who seek to improve society. But that's not, that is not the core missional existence of the church. The church is supposed to wrestle against the dark powers and principalities that keep the world in sin and death because there is no other power that can stand up and disrupt these dark powers except the power of the gospel and the victory of Christ on the cross. Therefore, it's not just that the call of discipleship is disruptive to us individually, it is that the commission of Christ for the church is disruptive by the power of the gospel. Where the body of Christ is present, where there is a community of faithful believers, where there is presence of disruptive disciples. The blind must receive their sight. The lame leap for joy. The oppressed set free. The brokenhearted healed. The poor filled. It is not a matter of first asking whether such a vision is practical or feasible. It is first a matter of asking ourselves how much we believe in the gospel we proclaim. 
And once we say, yes, Lord, we believe, please help our unbelief, then we can plan to what practical steps we can take. Always practically plan out from what we believe, not believe what we can practically act on. That is to say, our belief drives our practical action, not the other way around. I think one of the reasons why our initiatives, most of our initiatives fail is that we allow what we think is practical or feasible to detect what we should believe about the work of the gospel. And so don't play it safe. Don't define what is possible by human experience. Yes, most of the time we have to start small as a practical matter, small as a mustard seed, but never dream small. Ten years ago, something happened to disrupt the existing power structures of this country. There was a sign that abuses that afflicted this nation was about to be disrupted. There was a stirring amongst the prayerfully devout in Malaysian churches who realized that God was on the move and the church had to be ready. But if you look back, the abuses of power actually got worse. And those who prayed and longed for God to bring change suffered setback after setback, disappointment after disappointment. Earlier this year, on the eve of the general election, I was with one such veteran prayer warrior, Dr. Chan. I'm not sure whether she remembers, but she said to me, I wonder if it would happen in our lifetime. Because all indications were that the powers that be will continue to be secure. But I think God heard the cries of those devoutly praying for change. It could have been decades before a real change happened, but the Lord shortened the time. All right. But many huge and seemingly unsurmountable challenges remain for our country. Please don't think that God is done with the church or with this country. It could be, this, on paper, it could be decades, a whole generation before real transformation comes. But what if God were to shorten the time? What if the time of God's revival and restoration is nearer than when we first believed? I think it's not really a matter of God's willingness to bring change. I believe it's a matter of whether His, His people are prepared for the change God will bring because God often revives and transforms His people first before transforming the nation at large. And what if our young generation today, those in their 20s and younger, despite the manifold challenges that they face, would be the generation that God anoints with a greater, a greater measure of His sovereign spirit to bring national transformation. We who are of the generation of adults, parents and grandparents, we have an obligation to help them find their calling. We should be zealous for some of the anointing that the Lord is planning for the next generation. Because if He shortens the time, then in our own lifetimes, we might witness revival again.
Let us then receive this disruptive good news of Christ into our lives and into our midst this Christmas and onwards. And may the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord grant us who are longing for the coming of Christ a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, so that we will be strengthened to rebuild what has been ruined and restore what has been devastated in our lives and in, in the lives around us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.